face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of the Policy Dialogue Series with alumni, staff, faculty, and students from the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. The views expressed do not represent official positions of the school or alumni network. Our goal is to discuss specific policy solutions that can address and solve the current local, national, and international challenges we face. We are recording this on November 24th, 2020, and my name is Evan Papp. I graduated with the class of 2011 with a focus on international security economic policy, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which creates content on labor, political economy, art, and culture. Joining me tonight is a fellow alumni, Anora Wang, Nora is an associate attorney of Davis Wright Tremaine LLP, and she represents clients in complex antitrust litigation. While pursuing her law degree, Nora worked as a research assistant for the Global Antitrust Institute at George Mason University. Prior to attending law school, she worked at a biopharmaceutical company where she gained experience with intellectual property issues related to patenting and licensing technologies in the United States and China. Nora is an appointed leadership member of the American Bar Association's Antitrust Law Section, and she regularly hosts the podcast, Our Curious Amalgam. Yes. <laughs> Speaking with global experts on antitrust competition, consumer protection, data, and privacy. So good seeing you. It's been almost a decade uh, since yep. last seeing you. And can you talk a bit about what you studied at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy? Yes, uh, in well, in a policy school, obviously, it's the policy, but with a little bit of specialization or, I guess, I guess focus on uh, environmental policy. I was also working uh, at the time uh, as an intern, sort of, at, at, um, at think tanks. That's very much about um, <laughs> tackling the global warming. I guess you don't even call it global warming, but uh, climate change issues at the time, I realized I, I was not really making a difference. <laughs> as, as anyone who, who in their early 20s would want to do, you want to change the world for the better. I, and that's what I want, I set out to do. And I realized I really didn't have the kind of specialized knowledge or skill like in law, in finance or technology. And then that sort of like, you know, long story short, uh, triggered me to think about have another degree in law, which I did. Now, uh, Again, long story, long story in short, I find my interest in antitrust is, which is like a very nice area that combines all of my interests, like policy, business, law, technology, all in one. So that's that's how uh, I got my job, uh, what I what I do <laughs> currently. So for people who are not familiar with antitrust legislation and policy, could you discuss what is antitrust and why people should care about it? For sure. For one, it is not what you played the board game Monopoly. Let me <laughs> be sure. <laughs> it's not about that. But I, I am aware there is actually another board game called Anti-Monopoly. You can buy it. It's pretty fun to play with. But that's not what it is. Uh, outside of U.S., antitrust is called competition law. Uh, that's true in the EU and in a lot of other jurisdictions like China. Uh, China actually is called Anti-Monopoly law. Um, you know, another term, but usually competition law is the generic term. 
So as the uh, name suggests, it's about enforcing laws that preserve the, pre uh, the competitive process, not so much protecting your uh, competitors or like, you know, now I think there might be some voices saying different, like, you know, is it about preserving smaller business or choices in, in the marketplace, but, but after over a hundred years, at least it's shaped up in the U.S., uh, about preserving competitive process. And so when you were studying uh, antitrust in law school, what are some of the most relevant precedent-setting antitrust cases that uh, continue to shape the current, current uh, I guess, negotiations around antitrust? Yes, I think so. For, for, <laughs> oh, I forgot to give a disclaimer. I should I should say that anything what I uh, anything and everything I say here only represents my own personal view. It doesn't represent any of my client or my colleagues or my firm. But uh, back to law school, I, I have to say I did not take one antitrust slip, but like six, seven. Um, and then plus some sort of seminar type writing uh, courses. So it's really hard to narrow it down to one or two cases. But I have to say the most relevant to what is going on, I guess a lot of discussions with technology or big tech, what do you call it? Or, you know, uh, essentially try to reshape what the antitrust enforcement and policy is about. I guess you would want to go back to 2001. That's the DC Circuit case of Microsoft, US versus Microsoft. So um, that's in the space, what we call Section 2 space. Uh, section 2 is the Section 2 of Sherman Act that's essentially dealing, dealing with monopolization um, or attempt to monopolize. And a lot of um, tech cases or allegations against the technology companies is in this space. So you would want to go back to what, what exactly is the last uh, major case that you have seen in this space. And then DC Circuit is very wisely um, pointing out this is all under roof reason. What is roof reason is essentially that you have to go through the facts. Uh, it's, it's facts intensive case by case. You cannot categor uh, categorically say this certain conduct is illegal. There is another, um, provision in the law, which is Section 1 of Sherman Act, that's dealing with that. That's usually about cartel, uh, price fixing, uh, allocating markets and, and uh, customers by making agreements. So that's essentially, those are per se illegal. And then a lot of the allegations against technology com companies, I, I guess, like, you know, relate to what's most talked about nowadays, the current debate and conversations is usually in the, in the monopolization, the Section 2 space. And then that uh, there, you, you really need to go into each specific, uh, case and then really need to examine the um, particular allegation, the um, nuances of the conduct. So I think that's that's a case I would encourage you want to read if you're really bored and you, you want some <laughs> weekend reading. Well, we're, we're about to go into, I think, the 2020s are going to be filled with a lot of antitrust uh, cases and focus specifically on what's happening with tech right now with Google and Facebook. And what I'm always interested in, on one side you have um, capitalism, you know, in the big quotes of, of trying to improve and increase trade, yet oftentimes uh, the winners in that battle of that competition will become the major players and market makers and eventually become if not cartels, monopolization. And, 
And so there's that constant tension that's going on between the, the, the actual competition and then what can be deemed as antitrust. So I guess during a litigation, to just better understand for people like me who've never worked in a law firm, uh, how, how do you actually um, determine like the intention of a price fixing or like the creation of a cartel? You, you mentioned it, um, before we started about uh, data and trying to understand data more. And where is there a threshold where maybe the government says, okay, this is a clear case of anti-competitive practice? Yeah, for several points to, to address what you just said. Uh, first of all, there is a clear division between section one and section two, essentially like, you know, uh, those per se illegal conduct and something that, that you have to examine on the roof region. So cartel, that's per se illegal. That's not even something that you can rebut with evidence of efficiency. You cannot say it's more efficient if I collude with my competitor. That's just not, that's a non-defense. Those are per se illegal. And then for those things, um, agencies around the world, not just US, they are very aggressive, including Japan, Brazil, a lot of uh, jurisdiction that picked up in the past, I guess, two decades. They're very aggressive. They um, they use something you can actually check out one of my last uh, episode in my in my uh, podcast. One of the economists just talked about this. They call they use some a lot of like econometric tools, um, something called screening tools. They would look at like you know whether the price is, for instance, let's say there is a certain market for gadget A, and then there's a clear uh, change of demand, but there is not a corresponding change of price. And then people like you know economists who are either hired or like they're just out of curiosity. They're they're going to be they're going to be uh, they're going to be very um, I guess puzzled by that kind of um, uh, you know irregularity in, in what they have seen in data. And then uh, agencies do the same. They would uh, very very much um, looking into these kind of irregularity. And then if they do have uh, I guess enough data, they're, they're going to challenge, they're going to uh, open an investigation. And then once you have been found uh, colluding or manipulating a market through either, like, you know, there were cases like people actually doing that like manually a lot for a long time, like old school uh, smoke filled room kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> um, or like, you know, um, what, what they call concerted action, like, you know, you are just, just, um, using algorithm now like you know with more data and technology involved following the pattern following the pricing of your competitor so that's a little bit of your gray area like you know for for investigation right are you actually colluding or are you actually you always not it's just like you know robust the competition but once you're found i want to be clear those are per se illegal they're they're, they're not uh something that we have talked about uh that would be examined under root reason but I, I do think there are, um, so, so a lot of antitrust cases are involved, uh, are, are um, re revolving around mergers and acquisitions. So those are not so much about conduct. They're about forecasting, basically. Like, you know, if two firms are going to merge, uh, is that going to affect the price? Is that going to, uh, you know, enhance their market power to the extent they can unilaterally um, raise a price uh, significantly so those you um that that's different you are not looking at something like you know data was talked about like you know scanner data 
but you're 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 really demanding more economic work. You're gonna you're gonna consider what is the relevant market, and um, you talk about the relevant goods, uh, relevant product market, and the relevant geographic market. Then you see whether these two firms are the two firms in town, and then they, if do merge, can increase the price significantly. So so that's different. That's uh, another area that's not so much per se illegal or something like we just discussed, we just discussed about other conduct. That, that's um, a lot more about economic work. So have you seen a shift from looking at maybe the, the domination of a market uh, from a, a different corporation from focusing on, say, this corporation has 70% market domination, so maybe uh, they can distort uh, prices, to um, shifting from that view to looking at the consumer and saying, well, actually, as long as it doesn't affect the consumer, then it's, it's okay uh, for this market domination. And I, I mean, I could think of some online sellers that could make the argument that um, on one side, they have a huge share on the market, but on the other side, they've lowered the price. And so they can point that out that actually the consumers aren't being affected by it. So, so, so quick response to that is that uh, big is not bad. If you have been able to obtain, I guess, a lot of what do you call power, <laughs> but I would say just like, you know, you have a lot of share through robust competition, like, you know, you just invest, you just invented, like, you know, a better gadget than your competitors. And then everyone is sort of like, you know, switching to this, and then you grow into a firm with a lot of share. That's not illegal, right? That's what antitrust is about, is about preserving the competitive process, it's about like, you know, promote that kind of robust competition. What is uh, getting anyone into, um, legal trouble is that whether you're using certain means to maintain or create your market power, your, I guess, dominance, what do you would call, uh, illegally, like, you know, are you, I guess, um, I cannot give you any good example because, you know, it might relate to any case that I'm dealing with, but outside of U.S., um, in EU, essentially, there's something called abuse of dominance. So, so as you can, you can, um, understand from from the term it's not the dominance getting you into trouble it's the abuse of it so you're right a lot of firms can grow into a certain size that they're essentially the biggest player in town but they're also doing good things for consumers they are lowering the price they're um, increasing the output they're also innovating aggressively so it's about abuse part that's gonna get you into trouble. I do want to add one more thing that I was uh, previously talking about merger and acquisition. So um, people, like uh, a lot of people might take a different view right now, like saying antitrust in the US need to be more aggressive. And, and the way to do that is to sort of change the presumptions or, or narrowing safe harbors, or just you know, shifting the burden of proof in certain cases, people, certain people have, have been advocating that, you know, if there are two big firms and, and they are over a certain size, uh, their mer merger or acquisition should be presumptively illegal. People are saying that. People are, are also advocating some certain other ways for agencies to e essentially easier to, to get, get their cases in court and then uh, shifting the burden essentially back to parties that uh, say now you have to prove that you are not actually um, 
doing anything in a competitive, I have satisfied what we call prima facie, essentially the initial burden. Um, so that's something people say. I, I guess there are, there are merits into these uh, types of views. If you think the current enforcement of antitrust law in the US is under what's desired, what's the optimal level? Thank you, yeah, for helping uh, <laughs> that for me. So you host a podcast called Our Curious Amalgam that focuses on antitrust competition, consumer protection, data, and privacy. So how did this podcast come about and what is your favorite episode or guest for others to check out? Yeah, so I'm actually very fortunate. I, I believe I'm the youngest, uh, I guess not the youngest, the most junior person who is working on this project. So that is sponsored and actually organized by the American Bar Association and her trust law section. That's a group of very, very impressive lawyers. People usually have practiced in this year for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And then I got involved because when I was a law student, I might have been the uh, most loud one <laughs> who is saying, I want to do antitrust as a law student, like, you know, uh, being involved with the group of lawyers who is behind this project. And then that's the very time, like, you know, ideas about reaching out to younger people, reaching out to uh, non-lawyers or reaching out to lawyers who don't do antitrust, but, but who are interested or anyone, just the general public um, through some non-traditional routes. Um, Lawyers are usually very old school. <laughs> People usually still uh, read for information, right? So a lot of things usually is delivered. Content is usually delivered through publication. And then podcast is a new format uh, that, that this group is considering. And then they looked at me essentially say, hey, you're a millennial, you can tell us, is that gonna work? <laughs> and then uh, I, I said, yes, I, I think I, because um, I, 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 I'm myself as a big consumer of podcasts, I, I might might as well be a producer of one. So uh, I wanna be clear, Our Curious Malcolm is not just about antitrust, it, it also covers consumer protection, data and privacy, which is actually somewhat different. Like, you know, some things that we talked about, like, you know, data, like companies are able to gather a lot of data and then is that somehow grading antitrust concern? Yes, for those, uh, I'm not saying yes to that question, but yes, this is a concern, but um, this is the area that, you know, antitrust and privacy and data can intersect. But there are other issues, like uh, very much like, I. You asked me my about my favorite episode. I'm going to mention. There's one called "Is it um, is it not always not fair?" I can I, I I'm embarrassed that I cannot recite the title, but it's about uh, what kind of advertisement can get you into legal trouble. I think I liked about that episode because it gave it gave me some very very amusing examples. Like you know, you cannot, for instance, uh, advertise that you are selling fofer non-real fur, uh, but you're actually selling fur. I would not understand why would a firm was doing that, but apparently <laughs> that was a, a real case. Um, so certain things that can get you into trouble uh, by misleading uh, consumers, but that's very much in consumer protection realm, not antitrust. But they're both under FTC uh, enforcement um, umbrella. So definitely put that in the show notes uh, to link back to that as well uh, <laughs> to the podcast. So. You also recently published more than a dozen short articles covering antitrust, intellectual property, and trade secrets uh, from around the world. 
uh, is there an article that you could highlight um, about uh, essentially about what it's uh, focusing on and why it's important? For sure. Uh, so the operative in what you just said is short. So there are, there are very short articles. They're usually uh, two to three pages covering changes in policy and changes in law. And uh, given my background, I grew up in China and I also have a lot of connections there. And I also closely watch changes policy and law there. So, and that's an underserved area here. People do not understand so much what's going on in China. And, and it's actually very aggressive recently. There is a guideline, draft guideline that's uh, put out for comments dealing with digital economy. That's not something that, um, I know it's hot here, but there is, at, at, you know, up to this point, not a specific antitrust enforcement guideline um, targeting uh, a certain set of tech companies, but, but China has just put out one. So, so yeah, so these short articles that I wrote, they're essentially uh, of this type. They're covering uh, recent changes and highlights the changes, and then what could this mean for business and individuals. And, and then sometimes like I do talk uh, <laughs> policy, <laughs> but which I avoid to because uh, when you do do uh, get into legal practice, you do not want to uh, <laughs> get into too abstract fight when unnecessary. But uh, one thing I would want, you asked for a specific piece, I would highlight, that's actually not so recent. It was uh, written in 2018. When I was in law school, I was only a summer associate at my prior law firm, but uh, I, I essentially took issue with ITC, uh, short for International Trade Commission, uh, agency get in, getting into antitrust enforcement um, where there are antitrust agencies already doing that, uh, that kind of, um, I guess, um, in my view, improper mixing jurisdiction uh, is, is not fine. <laughs> you can go read it. I think it's online. If it's not, uh, send me an email. I can uh, send you a copy. Yeah, absolutely. And for the short ones, I mean, you're, you're focusing on everything from China and Hong Kong and Japan and the European uh, Commission. And uh, before we started recording, we were, I, I asked you a little bit about the WTO, the World Trade Organization. And I couldn't find much in way of competition law or antitrust law. And it seems like much of this is being done um, country to country uh, basis of domestic law and then obviously trade agreements that uh, you have locked in maybe bilaterally or multilaterally as in the case uh, for the European Union. But is there uh, an international standard for uh, antitrust law? There are good principles uh, that like, you know, many, if not every jurisdiction is, is borrowing or learning from each other. I think there are areas that you would see a lot more convergence is I guess in um, IP and antitrust. A lot of issues that we just talked about um, involve whether uh, essentially a patent uh, owner should be licensing its patent under what we call friend terms that that's a long string of terms, but essentially meaning you should be doing that fairly. Um, so a lot of issues, uh, a lot legal fights also um, arise out of that kind of issue, but um, there is convergency in the sense that um, people all think competition is good, like you know, around the world, people all think even though there are tension between IP law and antitrust law, but licensing or 
uh, any conduct related to that should also be serving goals, you know, uh, preserving competitive process. So I, I don't think there is um, any sort of agreement that you can find uh, when searching WTO for good reasons. So uh, for, for instance, uh, there, there is actually a lot of controversy when a certain agency in any jurisdiction is issuing what we call remedies, essentially solutions or ways trying to fix an antitrust problem going out of its borders, right? That could be a problem. So if, for instance, a certain company is sued everywhere and then, um, Country A is saying to fix this problem, you need to do certain things globally. And then what country B says, what country B, <laughs> what, what, what it means like no other country should, should enforce them because you know, ideally your remedy should fix the problem globally. Um, but, but isn't that essentially um, taking out the opportunities for other enforcers to look uh, you know, into the competition in their jurisdiction. Again, what, what, what we were talking before is that antitrust is very much about relevant markets, right? You have to look at a relevant product market and a relevant geographic market. Uh, for certain things, true, there are things that global, global market is the relevant geographic market, but not, not everything is like that. So um, I wouldn't think it's a good idea to have a global standard or one global enforcer. Um, for, for that very reason, you, you need to look at a specific markets. Even in the US, you, you, other than the federal agencies, you also have the states that's very actively enforcing their own uh, competition law, or what we call antitrust law. And then it will obviously affect um, a corporation that's on the trading floor of that country, or if there is like a, a market in that country, then they'll just have to follow the, the competition law within that country so that yeah that, yeah so i'm sorry my cat is getting in the camera <laughs> i'm gonna move robin away <laughs> but but robin uh a little trivia if you do follow our curious amalgam there is a fan base twitter handle called our curious cat that avatar is of robin's <laughs> awesome. so uh what what i was going to say is that uh yes so uh each jurisdiction has its own competition law and this could be a problem for certain uh, firms like you know if you let's say in the merger and acquisition space if two large companies who are doing business everywhere trying to merge you are legally required to notify I don't know it could be a dozen it could be more than a dozen jurisdiction uh, you know agencies in, in, in these jurisdictions that could be a very expensive process and 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 uh, not to mention very laborious yeah so in closing, looking into the future of antitrust, what are some of the global trends that you're seeing and where are there risks and opportunities? So I think one trend we actually talked uh, right before our actual recording is that cartel enforcement is very aggressive. People are ask asking, um, I think this is also one of the episodes that we talked on a podcast, is that, you know, is cartel enforcement down or, you know, um, like, you know, not as aggressive. That's actually not true. I think a lot of jurisdictions are catching up. They are actually um, maybe arguably doing better than the US. They are using data to detect more potential manipulation or collusion, data that's just not available here. And then um, certain countries like Japan, Brazil, they have their own tradition dealing with uh, 
what we what we just described old school smoke filled room <laughs> kind of <laughs> cartel problems historically so they're very aggressive on those ends another trend that we're seeing and, and you know needless to say if you're reading news you know tech <laughs> or people are just generally concerned with with um with i guess economy or marketplace where you can see a lot of what we call network effects uh essentially you just described like you know you have to be large enough to be effective right if say a platform if i'm not on it you're not and none of your friends are on it it's, it serves no purpose for you to be on it so certain products and certain markets it just works that way and people are concerned in these markets essentially would you be um seeing a tipping point and then after the tipping point there is going to be one or two big players people are concerned with the power issue and um potentially with that uh, affect democracy. <laughs> Those are arguments that I do not make, but uh, you can see they are very popular. Nora Wang, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.